Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 51 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. Paul Dillon, a veteran of the Vietnam War and vocal advocate for veteran mental health, joins us to talk about a message that he's been trying to get across to veterans for decades. The strong soldier, the strong veteran, the strong civilian seeks help because it takes courage to ask for help. The weak soldier, the weak veteran, the weak civilian hides it and puts their fellow troops, puts their fellow veterans, puts their communities in jeopardy. Weakness is hiding it. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veteran service members and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. We appreciate you once again taking the time to uh, listen to a conversation about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, uh, on this show, we are trying to change the way that we think about and talk about veteran mental health. And uh, I've heard some really great feedback from a lot of people about uh, some of the discussions that we've been having here on the show. And, uh, and today's guest is uh, no different. He's been having conversations about mental health and veteran mental health for a very long time. Uh, as many of you longtime listeners know, sometimes I'll interview veterans who are involved uh, in the mental health profession, uh, but my guest today is not. Um, uh, he is not a mental health professional, but uh, he is absolutely an advocate for veteran mental health. So I would like to introduce to the audience today, Paul Dillon. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dwayne. It's a pleasure to be here. No, I, I appreciate having you on. Um, I think uh, you and I have been uh, talking for a little bit and, and definitely something I want to bring out a little bit later um, on uh, on some podcasts that you've been on. You've really been a strong advocate in trying to 
uh, it really changed this conversation, maybe even longer than I have, uh, about veteran mental health. But before we get into that, I'd like to maybe have you tell the audience a little bit about your background, your military service, and and uh, and and things like that. Sure, um, I'm a, a Vietnam veteran. Uh, I uh, got commissioned in 1967. Uh, got when I graduated from college, got delayed to go to graduate school, went on active duty in 1969, spent the first year at the Army Aviation Center at Fort Rucker in southern Alabama, teaching instructor pilots how to teach pilots how to fly, uh, methods of instruction course, and um, and then the uh, second year, I mean, I knew where newly minted first lieutenants were going. Um, you spent, back then, the reserve obligation was two years and um, active duty, six years reserves. And um, I knew where, where um, uh, and you spent the first year as a second lieutenant. If you kept your nose clean, you got promoted to uh, Silver Bar. And um, I knew where newly minted first lieutenants were going then, 1969. And it wasn't Germany, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, and it, it wasn't was gonna, Fort Rucker. It wasn't no, it, you know, it's going to be what we call the Melvin R. Laird travel scholarship to Southeast Asia. So Melvin Laird was the secretary of defense at that point in time. And, um, so I, I knew I was going, I went through the army air traffic control school down to Fort Rucker, got certified as an air traffic controller. The same certification that FAA air traffic controllers get. When I went to Vietnam, I landed with the um, 165th Aviation Group, 1st Aviation Brigade, part of U.S. Army Headquarters Vietnam, and we managed all the air traffic control throughout the country, all the mobile control towers, all the mobile radars, all the navigational aids, which were then used by civilian aircraft, coming in and out of Tonsonota as well as transcending the country. So it was an interesting duty, catching rides in helicopters. I hitched rides with submarines, you know, and they were actually wanted to go out and fight. And um, that's where I uh, 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 saw the unpleasant side of, uh, of Vietnam. So, um, and, and matriculated, you know, uh, mustered out of the service, never spent any any reserve time because of um, uh, there was a drawdown then in 71. They were beginning to draw down. They had a lot of reservists. So I, I spent six years in the individual ready reserves, but never drilled or never got called up. So the tradition transition home was, um, was very, very difficult. So um, it was a very interesting time. You know, I, I think uh, it, there's definitely a lot of um, of people think they might know, especially um, maybe my father was in Vietnam, you know, 68, right. 69. And, uh, right. and, and those in my generation, um, maybe we think we know. And, of course, we hear the stories and things like that of how, how hard it was for uh, the Vietnam veterans to return home. Uh, but I get the sense we really don't understand uh, – personally how difficult it was i mean it's, it's stories to us so when you say it was challenging the transition uh back from vietnam to states i was challenging uh, it kind of in how was it challenging for you i couldn't get a job 
Yeah. Nobody. I was, I was an officer with a master's degree, and I couldn't get a job. And I had a, a you know, a family. I had a, uh, got married about nine months before I left. I had a daughter that I didn't know, came back, and it was exceedingly difficult to, um, to get a job. We, you know, we not only were ignored, we were despised. Right. And, and, um, and so it was, uh, Terrible, you know. It wasn't my idea to go over there, you know. Right, right. Uh, you know, and uh, um, we were treated just uh, terribly. So, so um, it was a much difficult time. And thank God, Dwayne, that now the country has been able to separate the warrior from the war. And no matter what you think of the wars that are going on. People have come to realize that the warriors are over there doing a hell of a job trying to keep us safe. And and um, so it's a much different time. And people have told me that it's, uh, you know, it's a reaction to how we were treated when we came home. Um, in fact, I had, I had in 2012, I had occasion to meet um uh, General Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that point in time, um, in Chicago, when he was in Chicago for the NATO conference. And I was a member of an organization that put on a luncheon for him. And and I was asked, can I emcee the luncheon? And uh, which is another story of the military-civilian divide. Nobody else knew what to do with a general officer, much less the <laughs> chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And General Dempsey came up to me afterwards and put his arm around me, a tremendous guy, by the way, and and said, you know, Lieutenant Dillon, he, I mean, um, it's my job, uh, part, of, part of the active duty, leading active duty troops, to see that no one is ever treated in the same way that that you were treated when you came back from Vietnam. So it was, uh, it was a poignant time and, um, I'm all for now all the outpouring of support for troops because I think it's just a wonderful thing and it's about time. Sure. You know, yeah, that and the I, country's learned, you know, yeah. And I think that uh, in in some of what, of course, I was I was born in the '70s after my father got out of the service. But I get the sense that many Vietnam veterans spent the '70s trying to pretend that they weren't in Vietnam, and for a lot of the reasons why you you had said, you know, is they were discriminated against in a very real way. Um, and it really wasn't until maybe the mid '80s that uh, that things started to kind of turn around, and the the service member service were was recognized. Was that how? That- Yes, although I never hid my service. I had my, I you know, that's back then you wore suits every day. You know, I was in the, you know, I was in the professional services industry. You know, uh, uh, suits were de rigueur, and I always wore my bronze star lapel pin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I was always uh, reminded of my service, and I was very proud of, always very proud of what I did, but it wasn't Dwayne until 
Um, it would be 1985 mm-hmm. uh, or 86. Um, there was a Vietnam Veterans Welcome Home mm-hmm. parade in Chicago, and that blew everybody. I mean, that just it was unbelievable, the outpouring of support. And I had a fellow Vietnam veteran who was a top reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And he said, Paul, get out of your office and go over to LaSalle Street and, and see this. It's coming down the street. And it was amazing. I mean, led by General Westmoreland and, and troops in wheelchairs. Mm. And it was really dramatic. And that was the first time, I think, when we ever felt that we were welcomed home. You know, I, I, I remember about that time really very clearly. I would have been about uh, 13 or 14, and uh, my father and my uncles, uh, I, I actually had uh, three uncles who had served in Vietnam, uh, and, um, and and there was the traveling wall. Uh, if you remember that in the 80s, right. how the, the Vietnam wall, they had a replica, and there's still, and, and it is still right. traveling around, but... Um, uh, I had been, um, uh, taken by my father and, and one of my uncles to visit the wall. And then there was a, uh, a, a, a gathering, a party afterwards. And, and, and even they look back and they said that was really, and it was about that time that it was, uh, and I even remember them saying, this was my welcome home. This was my, um, uh, you know, my connection back. And right. we're talking almost 20 years, um, you know, after you know, right. the height of the wars, and, right. and even in the early 70s, when you came back, um, it, PTSD, post-traumatic stress, it, it wasn't a thing. It, it was only until the early 80s that it, that it, it really it became so. It wasn't even diagnosed as, right. a, diagnosed, you know, 1980. It was oh. a, yeah, it was a real thing. I mean, everybody <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, was dealing right. with it, but, yeah. but they were dealing with it in, they were, it, was, it was a shameful Nobody, thing in a right. shameful way, right? Right, right, that's right. You know, it didn't even become a field of study until 1980. Right. So, um, it you know, it it's it took its toll on my generation. You know, even those who didn't go. Sure. You know. Yeah. I mean, it, it split families. Uh, families split apart. You know, kids. Some kids went to Canada. I mean, it was it was a terrible time in our nation's history. You know. And and, uh, and and I like how you said that about uh, General Dempsey, and I'll, I'll share a quick story for you because it is pertinent. And I've told this in other ways, but not on this podcast. But um, uh, I retired from the Army in 2014 uh, after 22 years, uh, and my father didn't want me to join the Army, you know, and he didn't want my younger brother to join the Army either, but, you know, kids will be kids. And uh, so both of us being combat veterans, uh, in my retirement ceremony, so I retired as a sergeant first class, uh, and it was June, I believe. And, uh, and as they do in retirement ceremonies, they read everyone's um, you know, accomplishments in their military career. And then the colonel, uh, in his speech, he paused um, after me, and then he looked up in the stance and he looked over and he said, and Sergeant France um, is accompanied here by his father, Specialist France. Uh, And he stopped and he looked at my father in his eyes and he said, sir, I just want you to know that I thank you for your service and none of the veterans of today would be here right now if it weren't for the sacrifice and what you experienced after you came back. And like, you know, and he started applauding and my father and of course, and he was, it it was really stunning to, I didn't know that was going to happen. 
And then afterwards, um, you know, after my retirement ceremony, my dad had colonels and sergeant majors lining up to shake his hand. Um, and, and that goes to show the respect that we of this generation have of the sacrifice, not just the combat sacrifice, but even the, the social sacrifice that the veterans of your generation went through. That's right. Kind of you that first of all, it's a wonderful thing to happen to your dad. I mean, it's, um, to receive that kind of recognition and it's a wonderful story for you to tell. And I greatly appreciate it. It's very kind of you to say that. Well, and I think, and, and that goes back to exactly what, what General Dempsey says, and I, I believe, I firmly do believe that that is a a, um, uh, a sentiment that is shared by many of the veterans of my generation. Even the VA of today wouldn't be the VA how it is right now had it not been for, um, you know, uh, the Vietnam generation, but even the Cold War generation and now the Gulf War One vets coming back. Um, and. and and it and it has been a sacrifice, and it has been a a a huge uh, impact, but especially on on mental health. I mean, you said earlier about separating the war from the warrior, um, and and you had uh, uh, you might recall, and I'll make sure that this is in the show notes. But you uh, had a conversation with Byron Chin on the Success Vets podcast, and I listened to that, and you said that uh, on that podcast too about how we've finally been able to separate the war from the warrior. Uh, and I and I wrote a blog post about that, but that struck me because that can be, in in some ways, we have done that as far as um, not not having the stigma of combat um, on the veteran. But I think we still have a ways to go about mental health, separating the mental health from the warrior. Right. If you know what I mean. I do, and and you know it, and as you stated at the beginning of the. Um, uh, the um, uh, your your program. I am not a clinician, but I have a background. My background in mental health is more academic and policy. I spent nine years as a trustee of the um, Chicago School of Professional Psychology, which is the largest independent nonprofit uh, school of psychology, graduate school of psychology in the United States with over 4,000 students, not only in Chicago, but in California and Washington, D.C. And then I spent three years as a public member and commissioner on the National Commission for Case Manager Certification, which certified case managers, not only in, in, in the health sciences, but in the psychological services and social services as well. So from those two professional um, policy-making um, organizations, I became pretty pretty interested in in um, in mental health, and um, uh, and one of the you know primary responsibilities, duties, advocacy of the Kennedy Forum is to erase that stigma. Right. Not only in the military, but as you know, Dwayne, it's in the civilian population too. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, in, in many employers who, who you know, and there's not a lot of understanding about it. It's not something, obviously, at, in an employment interview, you can't ask someone uh, whether or not they have a mental health diagnosis. And so 
in anecdotal evidence, uh, many veterans that I talk to, um, that uh, employers will just assume that a veteran, any combat veteran, has had PTSD. Um, and and so in in many ways, in the mental health ways, they're still not separating the the psychological war from the warrior. Um, and it's really holding veterans back. And so then it makes the veteran not want to talk about it. It it becomes this this very, um, as you said, stigmatizing or, or or very hushed thing. Right, and it shouldn't be, because um, uh, as as we know, and your listeners know, who, who are clinicians, um, uh, mental illness, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injuries are not weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, they are not moral failings. You're not a weak person because you have these. They are diseases, mm-hmm. just like cancer is a disease, just like um, uh, 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 heart disease. Uh, they are they are diseases. Diabetes, it's just like that, and and they can be cured, you know, mm-hmm. or at least the symptoms alleviated, right. And, and that's what I often explain um, is is with those conditions, though, um, whenever the first signs of diabetes um, starts to uh, appear, then uh, one hopefully would go to the doctor, get it diagnosed. It's in stage one, and they're able to make lifestyle changes around that heart disease, cancer. We want to get it at stage one rather than wait till it's stage four. But with mental health, a lot of times it's not preventive. It's not going in for that checkup and, hey, how are you feeling? I'm a little down. It's after, you know, a, a catastrophe uh, has occurred. I, I often say if I were an emergency room doctor instead of a therapist, I'd be, you know, dealing with like open wounds and bleeding cuts and everything because usually uh, veterans specifically that I see will come out only after something catastrophic has happened. And and see, Patrick Kennedy is this you know, former Congressman Kennedy is the creator of the of the Kennedy Forum. Um, has this wonderful phrase mantra: uh, "We should get a checkup from the neck up." Mm-hmm. And um, and another part of the work of the Kennedy Forum is to ensure the the um, uh, the melding of um, of of psychological health with physical health that when you go into your um, physician for your annual checkup that you're asked about are you under any stress you know are you you're the clinician clinician you know the questions they ask Mm -hmm. you know but you're asked those questions in the same way that you're asked you know um, are you having any stomach problems you know heart I mean it should be part of it should be part of overall diagnosis and, and treatment up front. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I would gather that we need some work on that issue, you know, to, to get it that way. 
Right. And I think there is, and a lot of what the Kennedy Forum is, it's bringing the conversation out. Um, and in, in, you know, um, for the listeners, and we'll make sure that the Kennedy Forum's website is in the, um, in the show notes, but it's not specifically for veteran mental health. It's really for, for all mental health. I mean, um, I often say, you know, I want to make veteran mental health as common as talking about the weather, but the Kennedy Forum, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, is really about just mental health in general, getting it all out there. Yeah, and let me read it. I mean, I want to read the mission statement yeah. so that so that everybody gets it right. Uh, the mission of the Kennedy Forum is to seek to unite the healthcare system and rally the mental health community around a common set of principles, fully implement the 2008 parity law, bring business leaders and government agencies together to eliminate issues of stigma work with providers to guarantee equal access to care, ensure that policymakers have the tools they need to craft better policy and give consumers a way to understand their rights. So, it, you know, it's really about, about mental health care in general. Veterans are just a small part, but a very important part of that mission. Yes, and, and and I agree, and and that's obviously where your focus and, and your in, involvement in the Kennedy Forum has been to, um, to to bring the veteran mental health uh, this this idea of commonality out in the veteran community. I, I wonder though, Paul, how how has it been received by veterans? Uh, is there a challenge from your viewpoint in getting veterans to talk about this? Oh, Dwayne. <laughs> What's the, you were in there? What's the ethos of the warrior? Yeah, I you know I, no right. defects, mm-hmm. yeah. zero defects, ready right. for duty, hundred ten percent, sir, ma'am, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no failings, and that's the problem. Is you know too many people to this date have looked upon mental health issues traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, substance abuse, as a moral failing. Mm-hmm. It isn't. You know, it just isn't. And and so we've got to get that message over to both active duty troops and to veterans, but also, um, uh, you know, the, the message that uh, these are diseases and that uh, they can be cured. And it's the strong, this is very important, Dwayne. Very important. This is the key of this interview. The strong soldier, the strong veteran, the strong civilian seeks help because it takes courage to ask for help. The weak soldier, the weak veteran, the weak civilian hides it and puts their fellow troops, puts their fellow veterans, puts their communities in jeopardy. Yeah, we so just I, hiding it. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. I mean, I I I recognize that. I mean, it it is about mission readiness, and 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 almost we have to think opposite of this. Um, that, uh, that standing up and saying, Hey, you know, it's, uh, 
In, in, in a, and I, I've said it before, you know, I, I had uh, uh, three combat tours uh, back to back over, I think it was like four years. Um, and, uh, and, and my wife and I went to marriage counseling uh, after my Iraq and after my Afghanistan, uh, my first Afghanistan. And if it weren't for those, you know, who knows what would have happened. And, and to be able to stand up and say, you know what, you know, uh, I was talking to someone earlier today that combat changes us doesn't make us broken it doesn't make us bad it doesn't make us horrible but it does change us the experience just military in general uh, right changes us um and then to be able to recognize that for me to be at my best both while i'm still serving if i'm active duty or to have a life of peace and joy and happiness and grandchildren and things like that then i need to nip things in the bud and, and that's where I talk to veterans today that it doesn't take 15, 18, 20 years as it did the Vietnam generation to be able to start to come to terms with this, that a lot of veterans need to start coming out now two to three years. So they're not experiencing what some of your brothers and sisters went through. Right. And, and, and that the message is out there and the services are out there mm-hmm. to help, you know. So you don't have to go hunting for them. Uh, they're there. They're in the VA. They're in community-based settings like yours. They're, they're, you know, they're out there. There's a lot of help out there. Go get it. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, and, and as I was um, leaving the military in 2014, and even now, and, and still staying uh, connected to some of that, the external stigma um, isn't as prevalent as it was even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, senior leaders are actually coming out and saying, heck yeah, you know, I've, I've been blown up three <clears throat> times. Of course, I'm going to go see somebody and things like that. And so there's still like the external stigma is starting to reduce. But from what I'm seeing, the internal stigma, the judgment that the veteran has, that that's still strong. Unfortunately, you're probably right. And, um, uh... And it shouldn't be. And we've got to break down that message. Command, you know, commanders, active duty commanders, got to, got to, got to bring the message that it's okay. It's okay to seek help. And, and um, so when people transition out, they're uh, if they haven't gotten help in the military, they should get it as a veteran. There's plenty of it out there. Sure. And I think one of the common things that, that I've started to see in, in some of the other uh, podcast hosts and some of the shows that, that they saw was that uh, a veteran will need permission, maybe sometimes, that, that, that they need permission from another veteran. They need permission from someone. Uh, not not to say um, that uh, it, someone says you're allowed to do it, but that it's okay to do it. Um, and and part of the, the Kennedy Forum uh, is they, they have an annual um, an annual forum, an annual discussion about mental health. Uh, in this past January, um, someone did come out and, and talk about their struggle with mental health and sort of come out and, and reduce that and say, you know, I struggled with it and, and I'm talking about it. So could you, um, would you like to talk about that? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. Because I think that we, um, and it was, you know, this year was Michael Phelps and mm-hmm. Tom Arnold, the comedian, and last year it was Elizabeth Vargas from ABC7. 
I mean, we have these images of celebrities as uh, leading a charm life. In many aspects, they do. But everyone is subject to mental illness. Mm -hmm. It's in every family. It's in every family. If people like Michael Phelps and Elizabeth Vargas and Tom Arnold and others could say, I, I, I saw it and needed to be treated. Why can't you? I mean, I think it's a powerful message. Yeah, and I think that, and uh, in, in especially, and I'll make sure that the video uh, between uh, David Axelrod and Michael Phelps, that interview is is in the show notes as well. Right. Um, but but Michael Phelps was literally at the top of his game, and in in and as he explains in this interview. Um, it was after the Olympics, um, after he had won all these gold medals, that he had this severe depression that he had actually contemplated, seriously contemplated suicide. And so someone would look at that and say, how can someone that has everything going for them has, has you know, literally, you know, crowns of, of laurels uh, resting on their head still struggle with this? Um, but as a mental health professional... I could see how that would happen and, and the same thing would happen maybe when a veteran comes back from, from combat that they had this very intense emotional experience and now what do I do with my life? Now I'm lost. Now I now what's next? And if I don't know what's next, that can lead to a very despairing place. And for somebody like Michael Phelps, you know, and, and everybody knows, you know, the win winningest Olympian, you know, all the medals, um, but someone like that would be able to come out and talk about something intensely personal. Uh, and yet a veteran can't, I guess, uh, go out and talk in a, in a very local way to his family or, or maybe a mental health professional. It's a challenge. It is, but you know, it's, it's the example of, of Phelps and celebrities like him, you know, that should, that should pave the way that should, I mean, look at if he can do it, why can't you? Right. You know, I mean, it isn't anything to be ashamed of. And, and we've, we've got to get over that, that, that hump, that, that it's something to be hidden. It should not be hidden. It's in every family, everybody, you know, um, experiences it in their family, workplace, whatever. Um, uh, don't hide it correct it and it can be either cured or at least the symptoms alleviated you know but if you if you hide it it don't get help you've got a big problem you know right and, and that's where things will will really kind of uh, unravel and and uh, and and this is again the the reason why this podcast and the blog and many of us are trying to at least get the message out there uh, is is because uh, people have a lot of misconceptions. As you said, some people may see, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder as moral failings and things like that, but there are biological and physiological changes in the brain that occur. Right. Um, you know, Paul, you, you had uh, a one tour in Vietnam and, and definitely not comparing uh, one tour to the other, but uh, many veterans... Um, I was not at home for any period of, or for one full year from 2006 to 2013. 
I was deployed. I was training. I was out in my, my children were toddlers when we started and they were approaching high school whenever I ended. And, and that takes a toll. That takes a toll on the family system, but it also takes a physical toll on the brain. And, and so really to back up what you're talking about, uh, from, from yours in the policy standpoint and me from a clinical standpoint, you know, it, it does impact our brains and that impacts our thoughts, our feelings and our emotions. Absolutely. And I can't imagine going back. I mean, I, I you know, after a year in Vietnam, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine going back for another tour. I mean, it was just, that would be, I, I just can't imagine it, you know? So when you guys go back for two, three, four tours or more, I, I don't know how, I don't know how you cope with that. And I don't know how the nation, you know, c- can keep up with, you know, how do you, how do you keep up with that? Aren't you, you know, the question I've always had, Dwayne, is if you keep sending people back, aren't you exposing them more and more to the opportunities for post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury? You know, aren't you with each tour? And, and how do you keep a, how do you keep a military like that? I don't, I don't know. It's beyond, those are beyond my up up my pay grade, to, right? And know. those are in in a lot of times it was uh, as you said before. You know, it's um, you know yes sir no sir three bags full. It's not something that I think um, we really thought about um, even when I started because uh, I had uh, uh, half of my career was pre nine eleven and the other half was post nine eleven. Um, and so even as I started to deploy in, in Iraq in 2006, we'd already been at war um, at three to four years at that point. And, and the VAs at home were starting to see veterans come back. That was really at the beginning of where people were really understanding the, the multiple aspects of this. And, and it's not, a, you know, it, it's not additive, it's multiplicative, right? It, 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 right? It's, you know, exponential almost. Right. Um, and, and it really builds on top of and, right. and, and I think that that's where, again, the, the experience that, uh, that the Vietnam generation and, and the, um, uh, the, the focus, um, that they've, they've had on improving the VA, improving the VA, I, I can't help but think that, um, you know, Vietnam veterans saw this coming a lot sooner than maybe, um, uh, than maybe even the communities did when they, when we started these wars, did you know what was going to be happening with mental health afterwards? Oh, no, you know, absolutely not. And I got to tell you, I think the VA does a great job with what they have to work with. And and I just go in once a year for my annual uh, checkup, and um, and then I get my meds from them, and, uh, and then I go twice a year for a blood test because, like most guys my age, I'm on a statin, so I – you know, get my blood checked every uh, six months. And I got to tell you, Dwayne, in both Chicago and in North Carolina, I mean, as soon as you walk in, the first conversations are, are you under any stress? Have you had suicidal thoughts? You know, uh, have you had any change in your, in, you know, drinking habits or start smoking? I mean, you know, they screen you right away. Right. And uh, very impressive. And one time I went in to pick up a prescription that didn't come in the mail. I pick up a prescription and they asked me, you know, am I under any stress? You know, I mean, it's so they are they are doing, I think, a great job in trying uh, 
their best with what they have to work with and in um in uh in screening for this and trying to get veterans help um but there's one thing i want to mention that the kennedy forum is big part of their mission and that's important for veterans and that is um uh you know roughly two-thirds of veterans get their care both physical and mental uh from outside the VA, right? Either because they're employed or they're on Medicaid or whatever. Mostly because they get it through their their employer. And um, uh, Patrick Kennedy was very instrumental. In fact, he was the sponsor of the 2008 Mental Health Parity Act, which essentially says that insurance companies have to treat mental illness you know, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress, whatever, in the same way that they treat physical illness. So the same payment schemes, same co-payments, you know, um, uh, have to apply to mental mental uh, uh, health as it does to physical health. And veterans need to be aware of that. And I can tell you, Paul, as a practicing clinician, and this will come as no surprise to you, that's not true. I mean, I mean, it is true that the that the uh, the Parity Act is is there and it's it's law, but it is not uh, on par with um, with physical um, uh, help. Uh, there, there, even in mental health in general, and then mental health professionals who understand the unique aspects of the veteran mindset. And that's, you know, and that's why veterans and, and clinicians, you know, listening to this should go to the Kennedy Forum website or go directly to a website called parityregistry.org. You can see what your rights are. You can lodge a complaint. You can try to get some action to alleviate that situation. And... I think that's very important for your listeners to know that that they have a right and um, and they can take some action to enforce that right. And um, uh, if they go to the KennedyForum.org website or to ParityRegistry.org, um, uh, they can see the actions that they can take to to help them over that situation. And, and I'm definitely going to make sure that uh, those links are in the show notes uh, so that uh, those listening can go there and, and access those. Um, it, but this is what I often tell um, veterans and, and what not a lot of people are aware of the fact that um, current era veterans, as you mentioned, uh, you know, maybe multiple deployments. Now they're getting medically retired as a, at a higher rate. Um, they're encouraged to, in addition to their, um, uh, their medical retirement, they're encouraged to uh, file or apply for SSDI. Uh, and then after a period of time on SSDI, then it becomes Medicare and Medicare becomes their primary form of insurance, which is great for a broken leg, but not so great for mental health. Right. And, and, and that's really the challenge that I see as, as a clinician where a lot of veterans, um, you know, and, and this is where the complicated aspect of insurance 
Um, I am firmly of the opinion that no veteran should have to pay for their own mental health. Um, right. They've paid. They've paid by their service, whether it was the 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 two years active and then the uh, the IRR that you served, or however long the veterans served. That they 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 paid up front. It it is a uh, it is a benefit, right? It isn't uh, you know um, it's something that uh, um, that that they didn't earn, right? And at the same time, mental health professionals like myself or psychiatrists or even medical doctors need to be able to be reimbursed for the services because we are clinical professionals. And so there's a, there's got to be a, a, a conversation. It sounds like the Kennedy Forum is doing a lot of that to try to ensure that that is, uh, is, is getting a little bit more out into the national conversation. Absolutely. It's a big part of what the Kennedy Forum does, and it's a very important for veterans to understand it because, um, you know, most of them get their health care through their employer mm -hmm. and, and they, they, they don't, um, you know, they're, they're not aware of this and they should be in the, and, um, the Kennedy forum and the work that you're doing, Dwayne, you know, is, is helping to inform and educate, um, uh, veterans in the general population, you know, what their rights are in this regard. And, and even, uh, in, in your efforts, Paul, and, and as I'd mentioned, um, you're, you're on several, you've been on many different podcasts. Uh, I, I recently, uh, heard you on Joe Crane's podcast. Um, and, and you're doing a lot to try to get the word out to, to essentially let veterans, and not just veterans of my generation, but uh, but but all veterans to know that you know they don't have to continue to go through these struggles um, that that they can reach out. Uh, and I just appreciate your advocacy uh, for 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 mental health in general, but especially veteran mental health. Oh, thank you. It's very kind kind of you. And um, you know, it's it's my honor to do this at at you know this stage in my life and. Um, um, I really hope that um, I'm one small voice adding to this that that um, uh, we're able to educate veterans and non-veterans alike of some of these very critical issues. Yes, absolutely, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. So, if uh, if if somebody wanted to reach out to you, learn more about what you do with the Kennedy Forum or some of the other things. Uh, what would be a good way for them to contact you, maybe on social media? Sure. Uh, they can just email me at uh, paul, P-A-U-L, at dillonconsult, D-I-L-L-O-N-C-O-N-S-U-L-T.com. Um, and or go to that, go to uh, dillonconsult.com website, contact me through there. <laughs> or um, uh, and then if they want to get directly to the Kennedy Forum, it's the KennedyForum.org, um, and um, to look at all the programs and newsletters and whatever that the Kennedy Forum has, um, and then uh, for um, for uh, uh, parody issues parityregistry.org and for those people in Illinois the Kennedy Forum has a Illinois um, affiliate 
and that's uh, the Kennedy Forum, Illinois.org. <coughs> uh, they can go to that and find out what's being done in that state. That's great. And again, I will make sure that all of those are on the show notes. Listeners, you can uh, find that by going to changeyourpov.com or veteranmentalhealth.com and uh, clicking on the podcast link and looking for uh, the Headspace and Timing podcast. And we'll make sure uh, that we have all of those uh, all of those contact information so you can reach out to Paul. Paul, I really thank you for coming on the show. It's been my honor, Dwayne. And um, uh, thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing. It's of great benefit to um, those of us who have served. Much appreciated. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. If you can't tell that veteran mental health is a passion for Paul, then you might not have been listening to our conversation for the last hour. As I mentioned in the show, the experiences of Vietnam veterans returning to the U.S. are almost cliche now. But taking the time to listen to someone who served during that time and returned can refresh your perspective on that. Think about it. During the 70s, veterans either denied and ignored their service or, like Paul, defiantly expressed their service in the face of opposition. The 80s saw a level of appreciation for their sacrifice that hadn't been seen before. And when the 90s came, the Gulf War represented a national appreciation homecoming that Vietnam veterans didn't get. And the 2000s show a mix of all of them for returning veterans. Some veterans today minimize or deny their service. Some express it in face of opposition. And some are celebrated. Along with all of this is the need to acknowledge, understand, and express the experiences that veterans have with mental health. As Paul very clearly states in this episode, reaching out for help is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. But that's only until you actually believe that, though. As long as a veteran considers it to be a weakness, then it's going to be a weakness for that veteran. Agree? Disagree? Let's have a conversation about it. Drop me a line at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com and let's talk. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast and your podcast player of choice under the Change Your POV Podcast Network. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network, the show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, Changing Hearts and Minds, the show about outdoor adventures that veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods, the show that helps get us out of the rack and into the race, Motivation Monday, and Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, then you found it. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is someone who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds overgrown Put
pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies. Broke out facilities that try to put an end to me. R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility. Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.